chapter 15. Show of Bibles. How many brought your Bibles tonight? Ooh, all right. Look at all that leather. A man went to his doctor, and his doctor, in a very somber voice, said, I've got bad news and worse news. He said, Doc, it's not supposed to be like that. You're supposed to say, I've got good news and bad news. He said, I don't have good news. I have bad news and worse news. Let me give you the bad news first. The bad news is you have a fatal illness and you have 24 hours to live. The man said, Doc... What possibly could be worse than that? I don't have enough time to get my affairs in order. He said, the worst news is, I was supposed to tell you yesterday and I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremiah was a prophet, a spiritual doctor, so to speak. He had accurately assessed the disease and the need of the nation. And he had for them bad news and worse news. The bad news is they were going into captivity for 70 years. The worst news is there would be death, famine, disease, warfare, broken families along the way. God in his love, though he loved and was merciful and gave them a long, long time in which to listen and to turn, they did not. And so the message that Jeremiah gives is, it's too late now. There is no turning. Even my prayers won't be answered. For the Lord told me, if I prayed to him, he wouldn't listen to me for you any longer. It's over. And in chapter 15, he describes just how bad it's going to get because of not the fact that God loves to judge people because he doesn't. God has no joy at all, he said, in the death of the wicked. But because of their choices. I know you've heard the old saying that you make your choices and then your choices turn around and make you. The deal had been sealed as far as God was concerned. They had made their choices. You remember Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade? You remember that scene when they're filming it, by the way, in Petra? Some of you may see it if you go on our tour coming up in about a month. But they're in that place where the grail was kept, and there's that old knight, supposedly hundreds of years old, and the Nazis in there, and Indiana Jones is in there, and they're supposed to choose from these chalices, which is the grail, the cup of Christ. And... uh, the old knight turns toward these two gentlemen and he says, You must choose, but choose wisely. Because just as the real grail has power to give life, so the false grail will take it from you. So the Nazi looked over these chalices and he saw one that was very ornamented and decked with gold and silver and he thought this has to be it because this is the nicest one there and he filled it with water and he drank from it and the old knight said he chose poorly and he was right because he disintegrated and he was killed 
And then Indiana Jones looked over the uh, chalices, and there was a very simple earthenware vessel, and he said, this looks like something a carpenter would drink from, and he drank from it, and he was healed, and the old knight said, you chose wisely. Jeremiah had made wise choices. The people of Judah had made poor choices over and over again. So the Lord said to me, verse 1, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be, if they say to you, Where should we go? Then you shall tell them, Thus says the Lord, Such as are for death to death, such as are for the sword to the sword, such as are for famine to the famine, such as are for the captivity to the captivity. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble to all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. It's an interesting and tragic promise because, you see, the people that are mentioned in verse 1, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, I wouldn't hear. Now, Jeremiah has already prayed. God said, stop. I won't hear your prayer for these people anymore. Now he says, even if two of the greatest intercessors in your nation's history were alive and stood before me and prayed for them, I wouldn't listen to them. Moses was a great prayer warrior. The people had committed evil. They made a golden calf. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses prayed because God said, basically, step aside, Mo. I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to destroy these people for their idolatry, and I'll start all over again. And Moses says, if I have found favor in thy sight, blot my name out of the book that you have written, but not theirs. He prayed for them, and God averted the judgment. Samuel was also a great prayer warrior. You may recall, if I jog your memory, back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, the Ark of the Covenant had been for 20 years at a place down in Judah called Kiriath-Jerim. And one day Samuel the prophet turned to the people and he said, you guys need to turn back to God. And so they said to Samuel, would you pray for us? Would you... Continue and not cease to cry out to God for us? The Bible says he offered a burnt offering to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord for the people, and the Lord heard, heard that prophet on behalf of the people. So they were known in Israel as great intercessors. And you may want to jot in the margin of your Bible, Psalm 99, and read it not now, but later. Because in Psalm 99, the psalmist mentions Moses, along with Aaron and Samuel, as people who called upon the name of God, people to whom God listened. Now God says, Jeremiah, we've already had this conversation. I'm not going to listen to your prayer on their behalf. In fact, if these two heavyweights came and spoke to me, I wouldn't listen. And he depicts and describes and predicts the judgment that is to come. In verse 4, 
I will hand them over to trouble to all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Now you will remember, because I've told you this before, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied during the reign of several kings. King Josiah, his son Jehoahaz, his son Eliakim, name changed to Jehoiakim, and then to Jehoiachin and Zedekiah, those five kings. He wasn't around when Manasseh, El Cripo Numero Uno, he was indeed. In fact, the Bible says he was the worst king Judah ever had, and he was more wicked than even the Amorites, the pagans around him. He was so wicked. By the way, he became king when he was 12 years old. You say, oh, he's just so young to be a a political ruler. Well, I know some politicians that are much older and don't do a better job than the 12-year-olds. But that aside, this 12-year-old king reigned for 55 wicked years. And he undid everything that his father, Hezekiah, a good guy, had put in place. Hezekiah tore down the altars. Manasseh rebuilt them. Hezekiah tore down the high places. Manasseh rebuilt them. Manasseh built altars to Baal, Ashtoreth, placed his sons, his babies, on the red-hot arms of Molech until they were burned to death as a child sacrifice to the god Molech. He even put altars, pagan altars, in the temple courts. That's how bad he was. The temple in Jerusalem. So God goes back in their history to where all of that idolatry had began with Manasseh. Verse 5, who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will bemoan you? Who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward. That's backsliding. You have gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you to destroy you. By the way, King Hezekiah, now we don't know this from direct history, but there is an apocryphal book, and it seems that it is historical. An apocryphal book is a book that is a non-canonical, an other book besides a biblical book, called The Assumption of Isaiah, that states that it was King Manasseh that ordered the death of Isaiah the prophet by sawing him in two. So God is hearkening back to that reign of this very wicked king. Because by his actions, he caused subsequent generations to fall and to sin and idolatry. Do you ever think about how your life is an example to other people? People are watching us. And a disobedient Christian is a menace. A runaway Christian, running away from God, going backwards, is a menace. Achan was a menace. He was the guy after the fall of Jericho who stole some of the money and clothes for himself. And by his action caused judgment to fall on all of Israel before the battle of Ai. David numbered the people because of his sins. 70,000 of the children of Israel were killed. A disobedient Christian is a menace. A disobedient king was also a menace. And verse 6 at the end, I am weary of relenting, says God. I want you to notice a couple of things in verses 7 and 8. I will winnow them. 
Also in verse 7, I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. Look at verse 8. I will bring against them. And also at the end of verse 8, I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. Sounds like God is taking responsibility for all of the calamities that are going to happen to these people. So often we feel very reluctant when we are dealing with the problem of evil. How could a God of love allow the calamities in the world to happen? And there are good answers for that. And about two, three weeks ago, we went into more detail on that. But God has no problem assuming the responsibility for the wickedness that has come upon his people. And there's a principle. Judgment must begin where? At the house of God. These are God's people. God gave them everything. God gave them the covenants. God gave them the law. God gave them the land. God blessed them and poured abundantly upon them. But they disobeyed him over and over again. And so God takes this responsibility. Verse 9. She languishes who has borne seven. She has breathed her last. Her son has gone down while it is yet day. And what does that mean? It means that even a woman at the very zenith of her prosperity, seven, the number of completeness, you might say, even a woman who was able to have seven children and be at the very peak of her prosperity is languishing. It's foretelling what is coming down the pike, i.e. the Babylonian invasion that would cause famine, disease, the sword, destruction upon all of Israel. Now look in verse 10. Here's Jeremiah. He heard it. God spoke it. He's taking notes. He's going to deliver the message. But here's his own personal reaction. Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. His mother may have been around, but it's a poetic device of basically saying, if it's bad for the soldiers' moms, the soldiers who would be killed in the battle in the Babylonian invasion, it's even worse for me, my mother, because I am regarded by the people, my people, as an enemy. And I'm not an enemy. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't steal from them economically. I didn't deliver them a false message. And yet... I have become like an enemy to them. Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me. Because of how he was treated for obeying God. Now here's a guy who, if anyone could ask, why do bad things happen to good people? It'd be Jeremiah. He did everything right. He did everything in obeying God implicitly, explicitly. And he's persecuted for it. Persecution is simply this. Persecution is a clash between two value systems. When two value systems that are diametrically opposed get into close contact with one another, fireworks, sparks fly. The value system of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness, and the value system of this world, when they get close together, a clash, a collision. Jeremiah obeyed God, loved God, spoke for God. The people hated God, wanted nothing to do with God. When they heard this prophet, their reaction was very similar to the reaction today you get 
when people who are God-haters come into contact with you, those who love God. I used to work at St. Joseph's Hospital over in Orange many years ago, in the days of the stagecoach. No, not that long ago, but a long time ago. And um, it was a Monday morning, and I came in happy. Now, nobody comes into hospitals Monday morning happy. I came in happy. I'd read something in the Word that day. My heart was singing. I was flying. I was whistling. I put my Bible down, and my supervisor, she turned toward me. She hated the Bible. She hated God. And she said, why are you so happy? It's Monday. (laughs) I said, do you really want to know, Kathy? No. Because she knew what I was going to say. Why are you? You have no right to be happy. It's Monday. Jeremiah was persecuted for doing everything right and being absolutely obedient to God. It wasn't to any fault of his own. Every one of them, he says, curses me. Well, we're in the United States of America. Jeremiah was in Judah. He got thrown in jail. That probably won't happen to you if you witness, if you tell people who are God-haters about how much you love God. You might have them give you a gesture or give you a word or two that isn't nice. They might laugh at you, but you probably won't suffer the kind of persecution that 156,000 of our brothers and sisters who were killed this last year in the world for their faith did. Down in verse 15, the persecution continues. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance on me, on my pers- for me, on my persecutors. Do not take me away in your long suffering. Know that for your sake, and I want you to mark that. Notice that. Know that for your sake, I have suffered rebuke. It's important if you're going to get persecuted. And I'm not suggesting that you go try to do that. Because you don't have to. All you have to do is live godly. If you live a godly life, you'll get persecuted. But if you're going to be persecuted, make sure that you get persecuted for the right reasons. Lord, I've done this for your sake. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And I say that because I have met people who have been persecuted, not for righteousness sake, but for obnoxiousness sake, for weirdness sake. They're just weird when they share the gospel. They're obnoxious. They would turn off anybody. I wonder what God thinks when he hears them. I was down at the Huntington Beach Pier. Again, this was a long time ago. I went out to go witnessing. And as I was walking on the pier, somebody had beat me to the punch, and he was witnessing, but he was doing it a little bit differently. He was yelling at people as they walked by, grabbing some by the shoulder. You're going to hell, straight to hell. You're wicked. God hates what you do, and just berating people. And I watched. And I noticed not a single person came to faith in Christ through that man's ministry that night. He was misrepresenting God. He was obnoxious. Oh, he was being persecuted, certainly. He was 
turning people off right and left. They were calling him names. And probably he thought, oh, I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. I wanted to say, I don't know what you're thinking, but if you're thinking that, you're not. You're being persecuted because you're a kook. The right message has to be accompanied accompanied with the right motive and the right method. Be gentle as doves. Wise as serpents and gentle as doves, Jesus said. I know a lot of people who are about as wise as a dove and gentle as a serpent. Look at verse 16. Your words were found, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, your words were found and I ate them. He had a good meal. Your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I found your word, Lord, and I ate it. Mmm, it was great. What a good meal. What was he talking about? I was thinking about that this week, and all I can think of is... During the reign of King Josiah, the book of the law was found by Hilkiah the priest. It had not been found nor read for generations. People didn't even know what the Bible was, really. It was found and it was shown to King Josiah who read it in the presence of people and Jeremiah was there. And it could be that it was that scroll of the law that Jeremiah took after being persecuted for righteousness sake. He was depleted of his hope. He was depressed because he was serving God and he was hated by his brethren. So what did he do? He turned to the scriptures. I found your word and I ate it. Not literally, figuratively. He had a spiritual meal. And it was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. You might want to put in the margin of your Bible there, Psalm 19. And look at what David says, not Psalm 119. You could look at that later too, but it'll take you some time. But just Psalm 19, which speaks about the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, the testimonies of the Lord are right, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart. There is a difference between reading the word, the Bible, and feeding on the Bible. Some people can't tolerate a solid meal. They can nibble. They do fine. You know, give me a little psalm before bed, maybe a snippet of Matthew. Oh, I'll take something out of Paul's epistles, just as long as there's not too many Greek names in it. Just, just a little bit to nibble on. But give them a spiritual meal. And it's exactly what Paul predicted to Timothy. In the last days, perilous times will come. They will not endure sound doctrine. Here's my prayer for you, that you'll get an appetite, an insatiable appetite for feeding on the Word of God, so that an hour Bible study is like, bring it on, give me more. Now, I do know Christians who can tolerate movies for two and a half hours straight without moving an eyelash, but give them a 45-minute Bible study, and it's like, are you done? Can't we be done yet? It's my prayer, it's my hope that when you come to church, you're given so much of the Bible that you get spiritual indigestion. (laughs) Even burp up a few scriptures during the week, you know. It's just, it's packed. 
And you'll eat it and you'll feed on it and you'll be enriched by it. Your words were found just when I needed it, Lord. The persecution was too much. I was wondering what was my fate. I ate your word. They were to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. For you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? What I appreciate about this is it shows me the humanity of the prophet Jeremiah. In one sense, he says, like you'd expect a man of faith, I found your word and I ate it. It was great. And then he says, can I trust you, God? Are you going to be to me an unreliable stream? And he goes from saying, I love you and I love your word, but I sure hate this situation you're letting me be in. And it shows me how even men and women of faith can go through these tough times seemingly believing and then seemingly wavering all at the same time. It could be that Jeremiah is growing a little bit bitter here. I've done everything for God year after year, king after king. Why would God allow this and these kinds of things to happen to me? That's where we get this question. Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream and as waters that fail? Now let me tell you why I like this. And I love the fact that the Bible is the ultimate no-spin zone. It tells everything straight up. And here's an example of a great prophet, a man of faith, who's not afraid to voice his despair his doubt, and his bitterness to God. He surely didn't believe in the positive confession doctrine, or else he never would have prayed that. He just unloads his honest heart before God. And I'm I'm telling you, when you pray, tell God how you feel. Don't be afraid to pour out. Charles Spurgeon said, There is no secret of my heart I would not pour into the ears of God. Well, I don't know if I should be that honest with God. Can I just tell you? He can handle it. Okay? He's God. He's heard it all. God is unshockable. Now, there are certain people, if you tell how you really feel to them, it'll decimate their faith. God can handle you. So you bring and you pour, like David said, I poured out my complaint before God. Your secret's safe with God. Jeremiah poured it out. It was the safe place to be. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, he's speaking to Jeremiah, I will bring you back and you will stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. In other words, Jeremiah, there's nothing wrong with me, your God. The problem is with you and your attitude and your thoughts, your vile thoughts about my reliability and my ability to... Uh, take you and carry you through this. So Jeremiah, he says, if you return, I'll bring you back. You've got to get out of this slump, buddy boy. Come back to me. And if you come back to me in humility, I'll use you again as my mouthpiece. So don't wallow in the mud. Get out of it. I'm not wrong. You're wrong about me. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but you shall not prevail, they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and to deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, I will redeem you from the grip of 
the terrible. The word of the Lord also came to me saying. Now you've heard this and you will hear it again in this book of Jeremiah. It's one of the most frequent phrases in the whole book. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. Your word was found and I ate it. The word of the Lord came. God's people love God's word. Anybody who doesn't like the word of God, it could be they don't love the God of the word. Sometimes Bible reading, Bible believing Christians are accused. I've heard this term before. Bibliolaters. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Oh, you churches who always read the Bible. And you're only into the Bible, not the rhema, you know, not the uh, that instant word, prophetic word from God. You're into the written word so much. You're bibliolaters. No. The reason we love the Bible so much is we love the author so much. And like we said Sunday, it's like a love letter. Picture a young man in love with a young woman. When he travels, perhaps, out of town, he takes with him a photograph of that girl. The photograph is a representation of the girl. It's not the girl. When he's alone at night, wanting to be back home, wanting to hold her in his arms, but she's not there, he may take that photograph out and look at it and even talk to it. And might even surreptitiously kiss it. Now, he knows it's not her, but it represents her. And so he loves the representation of her, though he knows there's reality behind the photograph. The photograph, he's not in love with the picture. He's in love with the girl. This is a photograph of my God. It's his self-disclosure, his self-revelation. I love the word because I love the God who gave me his word. And the more I read about it, the picture is filled in. The colors come alive. And so we love the Bible because the word of the Lord describes to us the Lord of the word. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. You may not like this, what he's going to say to him, but let's read it anyway. Jeremiah, verse 2, you shall not take a wife. Bummer. Nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. If you know anything about Judaism, you know that this would be a tough pill for a young Jewish man to swallow. Um, According to the rabbinical teachings, a Jewish man was expected to have a wife by age 20. If he wasn't married by age 20, something is wrong with the boy. There's not something not quite right here. There was an old rabbinical saying that said, of the people that will not go to heaven, now this is just a saying, it's not scripture, so relax. Of those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven, number one, a Jewish man who has no wife. Number two, a Jewish mom who has no kids. A Jewish woman who has no kids. That would be an oxymoron. (laughs) That'd be something. So it's an odd command that God would tell this Jewish prophet, No wife, no kids. Why is he saying that? He wants to spare Jeremiah. He knows what's going to come on the city. Captivity, death, famine, disease, warfare. Jeremiah, it's not like I'm saying it's bad to get married. I'm saying for you right now, it's bad to get married. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you might want to jot that in the margin of your Bible. Paul talks about being married and being single and 
he says, I think it is probably good because of the present distress for a man to remain as he is. And then he asks the question, are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Do you have a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Whatever condition you're in, don't do anything but stay in the condition you're in because of the present distress, probably the persecution of the Roman government at that time. And I think that's along the lines of what we're reading here. Jeremiah, don't get a wife, don't get married, don't have kids in this place. Because this place is going under, it's going down. And so Jeremiah was to live his life in such a way that it would depict the kind of judgment that God was going to bring in that place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, concerning their moms, their mothers who bore them, and their fathers who begot them in this land, they shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword, by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. See what I mean by a no-spin zone? God is just telling them exactly what's going to happen to that land. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace, shalom is the Hebrew word, from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness, the Hebrew chesed, which is my covenant love and my mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Jeremiah, don't go to any funerals and sit there and cry because somebody died. And here's why, Jeremiah, because there's going to be so many funerals coming up, you won't be able to attend them all. There's going to be corpses lying on the ground. They won't even be able to give them a decent burial. So you've been my prophet. Don't even start going to one funeral because you'll be going to them all day long. In the 1600s, there was a minister in Europe by the name of Luther Rinkart. It was during the days of the plagues. And in his ministry, he buried 4,000 people. Sometimes he wrote in his journal, up to 40 funerals per day, Luther Rinkart performed. It would be enough to do anybody in. I mean, imagine living that kind of a life where you, oh, I've got another 40 funerals to do today. Well, it's been a tough day's work. I buried 25 people or 30 people, 4,000 in his lifetime. And yet, do you know that Luther Rinkart penned that famous table grace? It's become a song. Now thank we all our God with hearts and minds and voices who wondrous things has done in whom the world rejoices. Can you imagine writing that during such devastating times? It's hard to keep your focus and balance on the goodness of God, but he did. Now look down at verse 8. You shall not go to the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and to drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. So, Jeremiah, don't go to funerals, don't go to weddings, don't go to parties, and here's why. What's the point? All these people are going to have some kind of calamity. The sword, famine, captivity, death, something. 
is going to come. It'll be that pervasive. And it shall be, verse 10, when you show this people all these words and they say to you, Why? Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster on us? What is our iniquity? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They have walked after other gods and served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. Now if you stop right there and don't go any further, that would cause a question mark in the minds of any listener. Hey, why have these calamities come upon me? Well, because your ancestors were wicked. Wait a minute. That's them. That's nothing to do with me. And that was all a setup. God is sending Jeremiah to make the most impacting kind of message he can make. So by saying this first, they would go, well, okay, so they were bad, but what about now? What about me? And so listen to the second part of it. After saying that to them, verse 12, And you have done worse than your fathers. Oh, that's like, in for the juggler. For behold, each one walks according to the imagination of his own evil heart, so that no one listens to me. Therefore, I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. You love idols that much? I'll take you to Idol Central, where all the idols on earth have been cast from the beginning, Babylon. You really love idols that much, even though you've been in the land of my favor? I'll take you to Babylon. And here's why. Each one walks according to the imagination of his own evil heart. There, in a nutshell, is the sin of the United States of America. That is a definition, a perfect definition, of idolatry. We think idolatry is bowing before an image. It can lead to that. An idol is where people walk after the imagination of their own hearts. Now listen carefully. God made man in his image. Idolatry is where man makes God in his image. Imagination of their heart. Well... I picture God differently than you Christians say the God of the Bible. See, my view of God is that, and you fill in the blank, he's a benevolent grandfather with a beard on a cloud, being nice to people and hugging everybody, whatever it is. That's my view of God. Whenever you reject revelation, you are then forced to lean on imagination. And when you lean on imagination, you imagine God to be other than who he really is. That's idolatry. You've made God in your image. After the imagination of your own heart. I say that's the sin of America because talk to most spiritual people today in our country and ask them to talk about God. And they'll say something very, well, I picture God like this. So, you could picture God as a banana. Doesn't make him a banana. Your view of God is less relevant than what the Bible says God is, and your view of God should line up with the revelation. Otherwise, now you're leaning on imagination. And that was idolatry at its birth, at its beginning. That's really a perfect definition. Therefore, I will cast you out of this land as we read. Verse 14 to the end, and we'll close with this. It gets good. Isn't that nice? After all this judgment talk, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. 
that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, that's Babylon, from all the lands where he had driven them, for I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them, and afterward I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain, from every hill, out of the holes, out of the rocks, for my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land, and they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. The Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. Let's not even get to that. Let's just save that for just a moment. But God says that he will restore. I've cast you out. You're going to be in Babylon. It's going to hurt really bad, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to draw you back. And it's interesting to me that instead of them saying, the Lord who brought us out of Egypt, it'll be the Lord who brought us out of Babylon. So just like you came from Egypt and you were slaves there and there was a great exodus, so there will be a great exodus from Babylon back into this land. Something struck me. It's that phrase, as the Lord lives. And I thought, God is speaking to a generation who had forgotten God. If you were to talk to them, they would say, Oh yeah, my fathers talked about how great God was in the revival under King Josiah and under King Hezekiah. Those were great days. They talked all about how God was alive and moving and working. And they could even go back further and talk about what their forefathers talked about, how God miraculously delivered them from Egypt. The Lord was really alive in those days. God says, Here's my prediction. I'm talking to a group of people who are going to say, as the Lord lives, present tense, he delivered us out of Babylon. And here's my point. Every generation, every generation should be able to say, as the Lord lives. None of us should live our relationship with God in the past tense. Oh, I remember 30 years ago when the Jesus movement was at its peak. Oh, the blue jeans and the tie-dye shirts of the hippies and Jesus... Okay, whatever, that was cool. Been there, done that. That's over now, okay? Jesus is still alive. Not as the Lord lived and then moved out of our neighborhood. How about the Lord is living? And I heard some of your testimonies tonight. And you know what? He's alive. He's moving. He's working. And all of us should be able to say, as the Lord lives. That's why I like and am very in favor of new songs that express new things that God is doing. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I don't love the old hymns. I love them. I love their expressions. And I think that a great blend of worship is sort of redone hymns of the past and then fresh contemporary songs. I like them both. Because it ties me into my past history but then it helps me live in the present reality. See, if all I do is sing hymns, and I'm not opposed to hymns, but I'm kind of basically saying, you know, God really moved 500 years ago, didn't he? When these hymns were written 500, 600 years ago, what a great expression. Yeah, God was around then. He's moved since then. But when a new song is written, I'm saying, as the Lord lived and as the Lord lives, here's a fresh expression of what he's done. 
as the Lord lives. So, verse 19 to 21, we'll close and pray with this. Jeremiah returns to his rest and trust in the Lord. O Lord, he says, my strength, my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. And think of all that he's been through with his emotional wranglings of being persecuted and depressed. And now he says this. It's a great way to end it. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? That's You sort of have to know the Hebrew. That's hilarious. That's like a joke. Can anybody make a god? Look at this. I'm going to pray to this. Where did it come from? I made it. Oh, so you made something less than yourself, projected yourself on it. Now you're worshiping something less than you. What are you going to do when things get really bad? If you can't even trust you, but you're going to trust something less than you that you projected yourself into, you're toast. Therefore, behold, I will... Behold, I will this once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand, my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. And that's where we're going to rest tonight. No matter what you are facing, worried about, thinking about in terms of your future this next week, this next month, no matter how bad it's been in the last couple weeks or months or years in your life, in your family's life, Let's end where Jeremiah ends. You're my refuge, Lord. You're my strength. A submarine had been submerged for a couple of weeks, I believe. Finally came to the surface and was speaking to headquarters, and the people at the base said, how'd you guys do in the storm the other night? He said, what storm? We didn't know there was a storm. They were so far under the ocean in that place that some call the cushion of the sea, where no matter how boisterous it is on the surface, it's perfectly calm that far down. That's the place to live. In the heart of God, so deeply in fellowship with him that, yeah, there's a lot of storms going on in the surface, but I'm here. He's my refuge. He's my tower. He's my strength. Let's pray. Father, we have read the descriptions, the prophecies, and the personal experiences of a man who walked with you during the reign of five kings, one faithful and four evil. He was like the one before him, Isaiah, a lone voice crying in the wilderness. But Jeremiah was largely unheard, unheeded, and persecuted, cursing even the day of his birth, questioning you. Lord, we're so grateful that the biographies of such greats like Jeremiah reveal the flaws even, the humanness, and the fact that in his deep distress, he turned to the word and he turned to prayer. And in doing so, he could say, Ah, the Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my tower. Thank you, Lord, that you live. Thank you, Lord, that you are working and moving in the lives of so many we've heard tonight. And would you just continue to do that in ways that we can't even imagine? Lord, perhaps tonight you have been moving and working in the quiet depths of a heart, in reminding people that you are in charge, 
You are sovereign. You are powerful. Nothing escapes your eye. Or perhaps you're speaking to some right now about the need of a personal walk, encounter, relationship with the God who lives. Because frankly, they don't really experience that living God on a daily basis. And it could be that it's because they haven't come alive in their spirit. Would you breathe life into those hearts? As we're praying right now, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. You've come tonight and you're examining your own heart. And if you were really honest with yourself, you'd say, there's really no spiritual life in me right now. I haven't come alive in the spirit. I don't personally know Jesus Christ yet. But boy, I'd like to. I'm not certain that if I were to die tonight, I would be in the presence of God in heaven. But boy, I'd like to know that. I'd like to know that my sins are forgiven, that I stand before a holy God, pure and clean. It comes, friend, by receiving Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to do that, or if you've gone backward over the last several months or years, and you've come tonight by the request or invitation of a friend or just out of curiosity, and you'd like to give your life to Christ or come back to Him, As we're praying right now, I want you to raise your hand up. And I'll notice your hand, and I'll pray for you as we close. Raise your hand up and say, you're saying, Skip, pray for me. I'll be honest, pray for me. I need God, pray for me. I'll give my life back to Him. Just raise your hand up. God bless you. Who else? Anybody else? Just raise it up. You know what it's like if God is speaking to you and dealing with your heart and saying, Yep, I am talking to you. Raise your hand up. Yes, ma'am, in the back, a couple of you. Anyone else? Father, I do pray for these. You love them. That we know. That I know. With an everlasting love that would command your Son out of heaven to this earth to die for their sins, shedding your blood that would atone for their failures and iniquities, all of ours. And so, Lord, I pray that in turning to you, they would experience that freshness, that cleansing. And would you, if you raise your hands right now where you're sitting, just say to the Lord from your heart, or even out loud if you wish, Lord, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus Christ to walk with you, to follow you. Today and every day in Jesus' name. Amen.